Understood is a resource I have recommended for many years to parents looking for support with learning and thinking differences such as ADHD, dyslexia, and more. And I'm subsequently excited to tell you about their podcast, Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. They cover topics such as how to tell if your child needs an IEP, common myths about special education, and the difference between IEPs and 504 plans. I love how Understood Explains breaks down the overwhelm by unpacking an important topic each season and then drilling down further into key basics in each episode. Most episodes are between 10 to 15 minutes, and episodes are available in both English and Spanish. So fantastic, right? To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Edit Your Life podcast. I'm Christine Coe. And I'm Asha Dornfest, and we're here to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. We share practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. And we help you take action with doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Good morning, Asha. Hey! Hey, (laughs) bud! It feels like it's been like six years since we recorded. It really hasn't, but it feels like that because we're on our summer schedule. So hello to you and hello, everyone. It's so nice to be back in our chairs today. Yeah, it really, really is. I, you know, as much as breaks are a good thing and summer, you know, sort of relaxation is a good thing. Boy, I sure miss doing this and I miss you. So this is this is great. Yeah, this is great. And I, I really feel like every parent I've talked to has been, I, I've said like, is it, are you having a hard time like figuring out what day it is? And I feel like every day I have to remind myself a million times what day it is. So anyway, <laughs> I'm glad it's a recording day and I'm really, really excited to share this incredible interview with people. Um, Juliana Minor, she is, she's so funny. She is somebody I met through, um, I don't know if you remember when I used to do a bunch of work with responsibility.org and um, on like, you know, conversations with kids and alcohol awareness and all this stuff. But anyway, Juliana and I met through there and she's just such a funny, smart person. And she has put out this book called Raising a Smart, uh, sorry, Raising a Screen Smart Kid, Embrace the Good and Avoid the Bad in the Digital Age. And as soon as I heard that her book was coming out, I was like, okay, we need to talk. And it was just, you know, such a great conversation. And there's a quote I want to read from the intro that I really feel like kind of summed up the uh, pressure kind of situation that we're all in. And she writes, parents right now are in the unenviable position of raising the first generation of true digital natives and being the standard bearers for all the families who come after us. I read that and was like, okay, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, but to be fair, that, that is very true. And I think that you know, parenting practices and standards change all the time. So I think the good news is we're sort of getting the ball rolling and, you know, people, it's like maybe we're the first baby step. You know what I'm saying? People mm-hmm. will, people will adjust mm-hmm. and uh, it, it will change. But that's not to say that we are not in this sort of uniquely like difficult situation when it comes to the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I I have to say it's sort of interesting that this happens to be a topic during the summer because I feel like it's actually especially important and relevant right now because a lot of kids 
when they lack the structure of school, they sort of default to their, you know, they default to their electronics and their phones during their downtime. And I remember when my kids were younger, a lot of parents in my neighborhood would talk about wanting to sign their kids up for camp specifically to get them away from their computers. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, man, what a bummer. I mean, and I'm saying computers. I think I think this was the days before the phones. So it's now just it's it's sort of a wider problem in some ways. And also, you know, phones have become a tool for kids. So maybe that's not a problem. It's it's complicated. Yeah, I think that's it's definitely an issue. And um, I feel like I'm experiencing something kind of weird and a little unexpected in our house related to this. So I actually feel like um, screens are more of an issue during the school year for us. And I don't know if that's because, you know, you're also checking something related to school and then you drift over to whatever. Or um, I know that like in our house, sometimes with Vi, it's almost like hopping on a screen is almost like a little stress relief, similar to sucking your thumb. Like you just kind of need to zone out. So um, in the summer, I feel like when there's, we've actually had less screen issues, which I know sounds weird, but I think it's because there's been more room to just relax and read and not need that stress kind of reliever valve. And the kids are outside more and this always results in less screen time. Um, And also I've found that Laurel's friends are also really busy. Some of them are now, you know, working all day. Um, but anyway, I think for sure screen time during the summer is an issue and, um, you know, all the things that Juliana and I talk about are really relevant any time of year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, um, it makes me very happy to hear that your kids are outside. I, you know, it's funny. I, Portland is famously rainy and cloudy. And so these sunny, warm days are in really short supply. So it could be very, it could very well be true that I'm hypersensitive to this issue. <laughs> I'm constantly like, why are you sitting there? Go outside. It's going to be sunny for like 15 minutes. You know? <laughs> no, that's not exactly true, but uh, maybe, maybe a little true. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Well, you know, one thing that really struck me about Juliana's book, too, that I wanted to chat with you about was that I it just, you know, so much of it connected to one of the key messages in our book, Minimalist Parenting, and that, you know, it's so crucial to tune into the unique personalities and habits of your kids and your family because there is no one size fits all solution. And this is so true in tech. And I was specifically thinking about, you know, she gets questions all the time about like when to get a phone and all these other questions that there really is not a one size fits all answer. And so I thought it was cool just as I was reading it, how many intersections there were with our book. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that too, actually, as I listened to this interview, because uh, I was thinking about the times that I've received questions from folks and, 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 It's so frustrating in some ways when you're struggling as a parent and you look around for advice and you ask people and they say, well, you know, it depends. There's no one size fits all, but it's really true. I mean, it's so true. And that really played out in my life. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact is, you know, the fact that there are no pat rules actually gives us a little bit of freedom. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it gives us flexibility in terms of figuring out what works for us. Um, And that's really wonderful, but it can be infuriating and a little scary because it's such a complicated situation. So what I love about Juliana is that she's so reasonable. She's very practical and straightforward in how she talks about this. And actually, as she was sort of sorting out some of those variables, it made so much sense. You know, as I was just sitting and listening to her, I was like, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. She really breaks it down. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's yeah, it was really, really great. You know, and there's there's one other thing I just needed to um, I didn't get a chance to her to talk with her about this quote, and it really struck with me. So I was like, I'll talk to Asha about it later. <laughs> um, but there's something that she wrote that just made me feel like, yes, OK, this is a message that parents need to keep hearing. And she writes, it's critical to remember that every child, no matter how smart and responsible, will make mistakes. Making mistakes and learning how to deal with the consequences of our choices are key developmental lessons all kids need to learn. So if that wasn't so long, I'd put it on a shirt because <laughs> I think it's so important. And, you know, this very thread, we're, we have some really great uh, additional guest interviews that are coming up, and we kind of hit on this same theme in some of those. And I just, I just can't say it enough. Like, and I'm finding, um, I have a, a teen article actually that I wrote for Grown and Flown. I've started writing for them. I don't know if you know that, but um, about uh, some of these things. And one of the things that I write about in that article is how, you know, even when you've got a kid who's like, I'm using air quotes, smart and responsible and good, like stuff's going to happen. So I think it's just a message that parents need to keep hearing in order to take the pressure off a little bit. I think maybe we should have an entire podcast on this topic because the way this reality has played out as my kids have gotten older. And when I say reality, I mean this notion of really good kids who generally make good choices, sometimes making mistakes. Um, How that has played out for us has been so interesting, especially now that my son is off to college and um, really making his own choices. It is these mistakes are blessings in disguise. I really just want to be just right out there because they open up the opportunity for conversation. Um, They make it possible to really learn. And I will also say, if you say this exact same quote and swap the word parent for child, meaning Mm -hmm. no matter how good and responsible parents are, they will make mistakes. That really helps too. You know, we're Mm -hmm. all trying this. It's all an experiment. And, and, as long as we keep talking about it along the way, I think everybody benefits. Absolutely. Okay, well, so much to learn and absorb, and uh, we will do that after a quick break. Especially in this digital age, since we're well beyond handwritten journals and letters to convey history, the preservation of stories is so important, especially from the moms and mom figures in our lives. And if you've been looking for a way to collect those stories but aren't sure how to start, I have a recommendation for you. StoryWorth makes it easy. Every week, they email a loved one of your choosing a question prompt that you pick. For example, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? And what aspects of having children didn't turn out the way you expected? Your loved one responds to that email with a story of any length. You will receive copies of these emails as they are submitted. And after one year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and any photos provided into a keepsake book. A friend recently shared how moving it was that her mom gifted copies of her StoryWorth album to immediate family members, a genius idea for expanding the preservation and sharing of those stories to people in different households and generations. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash edit. That's storyworth.com dot com slash edit to save ten dollars on your first purchase. Did you know that hyaluronic acid naturally occurs in our skin but decreases gradually as we age, leading to thinner, drier skin? If you're looking for support hydrating your skin from the inside out, check out one of the tools in my hydration arsenal, Rituals Hyacera, which I take every morning. 
Ritual's products are tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals, and Hyacera is clinically proven to reduce fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. They also engage in industry-leading sustainability standards and are a female-founded B Corp, which means they hold themselves accountable to not just their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. Want to join me in hydrating from the inside out? Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com edit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com edit for 25% off. Welcome, Juliana Miner. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to Edit Your Life. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I am just pumped about your new book. So first, congratulations. And I was wondering, actually, if we could get started. Your background is quite fascinating. And of course, people could read it on the book when they order it and get it. But I would just love if you could give us a brief window into um, what brought you to writing this book. Sure. Um, I am what you would describe as an OG blogger. So I've been around for a long time. I started blogging uh, in 2009, writing just like rants about how hard it was to be um, entrenched in modern motherhood and um, the overwhelming expectations and lack of sleep. And um, it was a humor blog called Rants from Mommy Land, and it did really well. And uh, I was really happy with being able to kind of get my thoughts out there and, and be part of a, an online community where I felt less alone. And it was all a great experience. Um, and about five years into blogging, I went back to work uh, teaching global and community health at a local university. And uh, I love public health. I've been working in public health for on and off for 20 years in various capacities. And uh, I came to write this book when my kids were finally old enough to want cell phones and YouTube accounts and to be online and to be internet people themselves. And uh, I felt like I had this unique perspective, both from being a, a social scientist and a teacher and also being someone who had worked on the internet for a long time and really kind of understood how, how the social media cycle can work, but yes. both in positive ways and negative ways, because I'm a pretty tech positive person. But obviously, there's a lot of information and data out there that's pretty alarming about the impact that it can have on our kids. So um, I wanted to write a book that was evidence-based, that drew from the research, um, and also that was fairly tech-positive, because I feel like it brings a lot of good to our lives, and and also that it will allow me to parent my kids in such a way as that, you know, I wasn't a huge hypocrite, because obviously, I'm online all the time. Right, right. And I, you know, Asha and I will have already chatted about this, um, you know, in the intro to this interview. But I think one one of the things that was so compelling to me about this book is that it is so data driven, yet uh, you definitely have the real parent lens on it. So I actually want to frame our conversation today with an excerpt that I felt was so illustrative of how complicated this journey is for parents right now. So um, you are sharing a story about um, a little tussle with your son over Snapchat. I can imagine that every parent has been there, uh, maybe with a different platform. But I read this and I was like, okay, this is like it in a nutshell. So you write, I know my kid and I know that what's best for him is to wait another year. 
But with that choice comes very real consequences, and he has to pay them, not me. This is a trade-off I'm making for him, and frankly, it feels like a no-win situation. If I let him get on social media early, I run the risk of his encountering a situation that he may not be able to handle. If I don't allow him on social media early, he runs the risk of being excluded from a big group of kids, as if middle school weren't hard enough. Oh my gosh. Comment? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's our reality, right? Like there's, we can allow our kids to, to do what is socially normative, um, which honestly is, is getting Instagram a couple of years before maybe they're ready for it, or we can hold them back and let them develop kind of offline a little bit longer, but there are social consequences to that. And it's a really difficult time for most kids socially anyway. Um, so it's, it's, it, it is a no-win situation and it's, it's so dependent upon the individual kid and their friend group and the school that they're at and, you know, the, the economic situation that your community is in and does everybody have new iPhones is, does nobody have iPhones? It, it just, it's a really difficult line to walk. Yeah, agreed. Well, let's, you know, actually, you just touched on one of the things, uh, basically my first question, because I think it is one of the biggest ones I hear circulating for parents. And um, you address right up up front this question of when to get a phone. I'm sure everybody asks you this. um, And I would just love for you to talk a little bit about why this is such a hard question to answer and what your recommendation to parents is. It's really funny when I when I speak to parents and they say, when should I get my kid a phone? My stock answer is usually like, I don't even know you. Like, how am I supposed to answer that? Um, Because it's really dependent on the kid. I had um, like one of the worst parts of parenting is that what works for one kid doesn't necessarily work for another kid, Mm -hmm. um, even in the same family. And and what works really well for one sixth grader is going to be a disaster for another sixth grader. Um, So when parents ask me that question, it's really hard for me to answer one blanket, you know, good response for everybody. Um, but I would, I would say a good time to get your kid a phone is number one, when it's hard for you as a family to function without one, right. So mm-hmm. that you know that there's uh, compelling logistical reasons to have them. Um, another good time to get a phone is when you and your kid are on the exact same page about why it's needed um, and what it's going to be used for. Um, so one of the things that I suggest in the book is kind of sitting down and coming up, having the parents come up with a list of reasons why a phone is a good idea and how it could be used and having your kid do the same thing and then comparing those lists. Um, and then another thing that, uh, that's part of this sort of rubric for deciding when's a good time to get a phone. And this is something I don't think is on most parents' radars is how willing and comfortable you feel about discussing things like porn and sexting and inappropriate um, and sometimes really adult content that your kids are going to come across if they have their own device. I mean, I, most kids don't even go looking for it. It just kind of finds them. Um, yeah. even, even with parental controls, even the best kids, stuff finds their way to them and you, you, you have to prepare them for that. And I'm, if you're not comfortable discussing porn on the internet with your 11 year old, then frankly, either you're not ready to get them a phone or they're not ready to have one. I think that's a fantastic litmus test, honestly. And I think the thing that really struck me about this like parallel question list that you outline in in your book is that 
um, it just shows such an intentionality and mindfulness that I think is just not present in the the current conversation for many families. Cause usually it's just the kid says, I want one. And, you know, really the usual, the typical answer is just for the why is because everybody else has one <laughs> and that's it. Right. And there's, yeah. there's a lot of reasons to have them. Um, one of the things I think a, a lot of our kids are losing out on today versus when we were young is that they have less freedom and less ability to kind of run around and um, do things independently um, and, you know, really develop as people outside of, of being supervised by their parents. And it's just, it's a different world. It is what it is. Um, and sometimes having a cell phone makes us all more comfortable with letting our kids ride their bikes to the pool mm, to meet mm-hmm. their friends. Or, um, you know, my son at a certain age was like, I'd really like to ride my skateboard and meet my friend and get a taco and then ride my skateboard home. And, um, with a phone, you know, I felt a lot more comfortable with him doing that. And it it gives him the freedom to do the things that we took for granted in the eighties, you know, when we were kids, um, while making us all more comfortable that, that he can kind of do that with a safety net. Right. Um, The other thing that the lists really provide is a giving, both, both parents and kids, a sense of, um, of, of like mutual expectations. So your sixth grader might not even want to have Snapchat or assume that that's something that you would be comfortable with. Um, whereas you might be thinking if I give my kid a phone and they're automatically going to download every social, they're going to get TikTok and they're going to get Snapchat and Instagram. And the, the presumption is going to be that they're going to have those accounts and use those accounts. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you're just not on the same page and it helps to clarify that. It also helps to clarify, um, you know, if my grades drop or if I have a project, um, that the phone goes away for a couple of hours after school, it just, I I think it's useful. And it also gives kids some ownership, um, over, over setting ground rules. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so useful too, because it it also, that conversation will help set the stage for, you know, perhaps if you wish to develop, you know, a a phone contract, which I know is something that you talk about. And that's, you know, something we talked about with our um, teenager too, when she got her phone. So you mentioned different worlds. And one of the things that you brought up in your book, and it was a term I had actually not heard before. So I would love to dive into it a little bit more is you write about something called the imaginary audience and how um, this framework can help parents understand why kids use tech and why they respond the way they do. So could you just take a moment to explain what this is and how to help kids reframe their technology use to, you know, you refer to it as active decision-making and anticipating consequences instead of, you know, being stuck in this feedback loop, um, you know, for affirmation and likes and all that stuff. Sure. Um, I, I love this whole concept of the imaginary audience. Uh, it was originally developed in the 1960s uh, as a, a adolescent development construct to explain uh, essentially ego development in young people. And it is so appropriate and sort of um, prescient in terms of describing how kids interact with social media and uh, I, I think it, it, there's a bunch of research in the psychology and adolescent development literature now um, that ties the two things together. But essentially, the imaginary audience is a, a developmental phase where kids feel like they're constantly being observed. 
Mm. Um, and it and it corresponds with the advent of puberty. So there's major physical changes um, and also major cognitive changes, right? So you, kids are hitting one of their last stages of really formative brain development. So they're feeling totally different. They look totally different. And the way that they process other people and the world around them is totally different. And all of this happens in a very short period of time. And it's also generally the same period of time when most American kids are getting their first cell phone. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if you remember being like in middle school and having this sense that whatever you wore was going to be very closely scrutinized. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. Like if you had a pimple, everybody was going to talk about it. You know, if a boy liked you or you liked a girl or something like everybody was going to know it was going to be dissected at the lunch tables. And and that's really what the imaginary audience is. This perception that you are in a fishbowl, that everyone is watching you all the time. Um, and and it, at, at a certain point, kids begin to almost perform for the imaginary audience because it becomes so salient to them, this idea that they're always being surveyed and... Um, and observed that it's this constant present in their life, presence in their life rather. Um, and, and social media and cell phones really make that, that imaginary audience interaction and ideation stronger because mm-hmm. when you have Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you're interacting with an audience all the time, right? You're curating your feed. You become the protagonist in your Instagram feed or your Snapchat stories and other people are interacting with it and observing everything that you post. So the imaginary audience, um, which is a really useful developmental phase, is really enhanced by using social media at the same time that it hits. And also there's some evidence that it's elongated. Um, mm. So that kids will, if they are on social media constantly during that key developmental phase, that they may um, be really engaging with that audience longer. Um, but like every phase, uh, that, that, you know, it's productive and it's meaningful when you move through it. So our goal with imaginary audience ideation, as with every other phase of adolescence, is to kind of help kids progress through it in a positive and healthy way and move on to the next thing. Right. And so how would you, um, like, how would you put that into action with, with a teenager? If you, is it monitoring their feed and seeing if they're sort of getting obsessive in the comments about, you know, I, I, I'm curious about how, what your first step recommendations would be for parents to help kids through this. Well, I, I always think you need to be looking at your kids online and how they're behaving, um, observing them, but also interacting with them, Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that you're part of their digital life, um, seeing what they're posting, seeing what they're commenting, but also interacting with them. Um, so yeah, you want to see whether or not they're getting caught up in this affirmation loop where you post something and you wait for the response from the imaginary audience. How many likes are you getting? How many comments are you getting? And I think one thing to do is really get a sense of how that affirmation affects them. So for some kids, posting a photo and it not getting enough likes is, you know, uh, disappointing, but mm-hmm. not a big deal. They get on with their day. And for other kids, they could get lots of likes and lots of comments. But if the comments aren't properly effusive, if it's not like, you look like a model versus like, you look pretty, then they get upset. Mm-hmm. And if you see your kid um, feeling over-invested in the response from their mm-hmm. social media audience, it's a real cue that maybe you need to help them 
process what it means yeah um, and put it in a context that is easier for them to um to put in perspective and maybe not take it as seriously being over invested in that feedback cycle and that affirmation cycle is really bad in terms of um overall emotional well-being in the long term it, it really drives the sense of social comparison mm-hmm. um that just makes kids feel bad yeah yeah i think yeah i think the you know the underlying messages you know you got to kind of keep keep up on what's going on and keep observing and i think it's so common with teens to assume that okay they need me less than my little kids <laughs> yeah so i can i can check out a little and you know that's totally understandable but they do it does require kind of a level of attention that's different it's just different than little kids well so I would love to move on to talk about modeling good tech behavior. Um, you know, this is this can be tough, but how would you recommend parents self-evaluate and involve their kids in this possibly painful evaluation? I oh, this is the one piece of advice that kept coming up again and again from every expert that I interviewed was that parents needed to model the behavior they expect in their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of the things that drove me to write the book because I'm on my phone and my laptop constantly. And it felt really hypocritical for me to be staring like with my phone in my hand, looking at my kids being like, get off your phone. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think the first thing to do is just ask your kids, how much do you think I'm on my phone? Do you think I'm on my phone too much? Um, right. You know, pick your moment. Like, don't, don't don't ask them when you know you're going to get a bad response. But um, I like to talk to my kids in the car when they're a little distracted. We don't necessarily have to make eye contact. I find I get the best and most honest feedback from them. But I mean, I I think it's a really good idea to ask your kids straight up, you know, do you think I'm on my phone too much? Is there, am I ever making you feel like you're not important because I'm on my phone? And and you should be prepared for them to be real honest with you. I mean, that's the other thing about teenagers, right? Like if you want an honest answer, Ask your teenage daughter because she'll tell you. <laughs> um, that that's the biggest truth bomb. Yeah, no, I <laughs> I, I agree. So um, I I think really being prepared for that um, that truth is is really important. Okay, we have so much more to discuss, and Juliana, we will do that after a quick break. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, 
we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Okay, friends, we're back with Juliana Minor, and we are talking about raising screen smart kids. Yay, the good, bad, and the good, I guess. <laughs> um, so let's talk about social skills. I hear so many parents lament that their kids are completely losing their ability to develop their social skills because of technology. So, you know, you talk a bit about this or quite a bit. I would love for you to share some simple things parents can do to turn this tide. Sure. Um... Uh, social skills, the good news about social skills is that they can be taught. Um, and I think one thing parents can do is be very specific about what what it is they're looking for. So with um, with one of my kids, eye contact is the constant prompt that I'm giving him. Mm. He um, he is such a uh, like a friendly kid and he says hi to every parent that he runs into and I get text messages that that people have run into him and he's friendly and polite. And it's, I'm so delighted whenever I get that. Um, but we are constantly saying like, Hey, dude, you gotta, you gotta look people in the eye. Um, for another kid, we have, um, other suggestions that work better for her. So I think it's not just that we want to encourage social skills. We want to be very specific about what we feel like our kids need to work on. Uh, the other thing that we really need to do is model again what we want to see. So if your expectation is that in a social social situation that phones will be put away when your friends are over, mm-hmm. put your phones away. Um, when you are having a conversation with your kids, don't look at your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that it's easier to have the expectation of other people when you're demonstrating that same behavior yourself. Um, and and to narrate, if you have to break that rule, like to make it very explicit why you are. Like, I have to look at my phone right now. Please excuse me. I'm expecting a really important call for work. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes to let them know maybe why you're looking at a phone um, instead of giving them your full attention. Um, and the other thing I think is to really prioritize in-person interaction and communication with their friends. Um, so it's sort of like in FaceTime versus FaceTime. You know, um, yes, it's hard when we have no time um, and our kids, for the most part, are really busy. Um, But prioritizing in-person time together allows them to develop conversational skills and to um, be able to process nuance. It also really enhances their friendships. Like it can take kid friendships from, you know, exchanging pieces of communication on Snapchat or in DMs to like more meaningful communication and doing things together. So I actually really prioritize uh, for my kids spending time in person with their friends. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I actually will make a little plug because this will be kind of like the uh, double win for self-care for adults too, is, you know, modeling the importance of in-person friendship yourself. So, you know, we hear from so many of our listeners that it's hard 
to carve out time with friends. So, you know, show your kids that friendships matter and get out and, you know, make a coffee date with somebody. So that's my double win. You'll be you'll be taking care of yourself in your relationships and also modeling good relationship behavior for your kids. Right. Total bonus. (laughs) hundred percent. And it's actually a triple win because there is uh, a lot of data in the, in in the neuroscience data, which is right up your alley, right. Mm -hmm. That says that that in-person time is really beneficial to well-being and happiness. That the more time we spend interacting with friends, conversing with friends, making that eye contact, um, connecting with others, that the happier we are. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, what the thing about spending time with a friend, even if you're just going for a walk or you know, if you're a kid throwing a ball or whatever, like it's free, yes. <laughs> which is nice as a parent of teens. Like there's very few things that they want to do that are free, but having, you know, having a friend come over and make brownies at 10 o'clock at night is free and they're making a memory and they're feeling happier and they're growing those communication skills and deepening a friendship. And, you know, it's, it's worth it. Even if I don't want to have people in my house at 10 p.m. It's it's worth doing. Yeah, I get it. Actually, just the other day, um, you know, my teenager had a friend over and they were, you know, whatever, doing their teenager things. And then um, they offered to go pick up Violet, my younger one from camp, like on foot. And I'm like, OK, everything is everything is great. <laughs> one less pickup for me. They're having time together. I feel like I'm winning this summer day. Right. And, and you know what, like an author like Jessica Leahy would say that they're building competence and mastery and independence by taking care of a household errand. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're just killing it basically (laughs) as a parent. You should feel really good. I mean, I can crush it one day and then totally fail the next day. And that's (laughs) totally fine because, you know, the gift of imperfection. Exactly. Um, Okay. Well, let's move on to digital addiction. You know, people, adults, kids, whatever, joke all the time about being addicted to their phones, but it is an issue. And I would love for you to share some key signs that, you know, where a parent should, you know, actually maybe be concerned about their kid and what might be some first steps to take. I think that's an awesome question. And digital addiction was certainly one of the reasons that motivated me to write the book. Um, As as adults, especially as an adult who um, works online, I constantly have my phone in my hand or in my pocket or I'm looking at my laptop. Um, and as a society, tech is so entrenched in how we communicate and how we work and how we learn that it's really difficult to tease out what's um, what's necessary to function as a mm-hmm. professional or as a student and, and what is um, problematic use, right? So I look to the, the medical data. And the DSM actually doesn't define digital addiction. It only defines gaming addiction. And that's true both in the U.S. and in the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Digital addiction, internet use addiction, gaming addiction, all of that kind of clumped together is uh, behavioral rather than chemical necessarily. So it has more in common um, in terms of how it's defined and how it would be looked at by a a mental health professional or a medical professional than like a cocaine addiction. So the first thing I would advise parents to do is take a look at that definition. I have it in the book. You can look it up easily online. Um, You could just Google DSM gaming addiction, internet gaming addiction. But uh, it's going to ask questions like, uh, has, have you tried to stop, but you can't, are you building up a tolerance to it so that you need to use it more and more to feel the same satisfaction? Um, are your relationships negatively affected? Is your work negatively affected or, you know, school negatively affected? Uh, I spoke with 
several really smart digital addiction experts and, and treatment um, experts. And one of the things that they said is, is your child sleep deprived? Mm-hmm. Uh, are your child's relationships, friendships, relationships within the family suffering? Um, have they lost interest in doing other things that used to mean something to them? Um, and the, you know, the other thing that every digital addiction expert told me, the one thing that they all were on the same page about is that every time they would do uh, like an intake meeting uh, with a kid about digital addiction, that the parents would be looking at their phones. Oh boy. <laughs> so it's another example yep. of maybe taking a good hard look at your family and yourself and saying, what's normal in our family, mm-hmm. right? So what's, what's the normal spectrum of using technology um, for work or for in our kids' cases, maybe to socialize or communicate with their friends? Since that line between um, real friendship, in-person friendship and digital friendship is like that line doesn't exist for kids. Mm-hmm. It's all the same, right? So if you would be fine with your kid talking on the phone for an hour or two every single night to their friends while they do their homework, which is, you know, what I did in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, really, what's the difference between them Skyping and doing homework? Right. It's right. it's the same thing. So um, again, taking a look at, at what an honest look at what's normal behavior for your what's socially normal behavior for your family. But if you feel like uh, you've really tried to take some steps to work with your kid to reduce their online time, but that their use is compulsive and having a really negative impact on their life, um, that you've tried to help guide them to do some self-regulation and it hasn't worked, that it's a daily constant thing that's causing conflict. Um, it's probably a good idea to start with your pediatrician mm-hmm. um, and see what their recommendations are. And and I would say this to anyone, if you talk to an expert, whether it's your doctor or whoever, and you really don't feel comfortable with the feedback that you're getting, just go see somebody else. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, there are a lot of people out there. Unfortunately, digital addiction, unless it is gaming addiction, is often not covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something that most most families are going to be paying for out of pocket. Yeah, which very interesting. Really interesting. I did not know that about the DSM classification. So um, yeah, that's really, really fascinating. Okay, well, I have um, a couple more questions for you. And one of them is that, you know, so much of this technology journey is very scary and confusing, which is why precisely I love that your closing chapter is both realistic about this, but then offers a ton of positive super real steps to move forward. And one of my favorites was um, digital mentorship, which I'm not sure, again, is a term that I'd really heard used before. So can you explain what this is and why it's so important? Sure. Um, There are a couple of people who are out there writing and speaking about, um, you know, digital citizenship and raising kids. Deborah Heitner is one of them. She's Mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And she talks about um, monitoring versus mentoring. Right. And this concept that like when we monitor our kids online, we're sort of policing them. But when we mentor them, we're giving them the opportunity to um, to observe how we behave online and how we interact with others online and how we use technology and that that's much more productive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also what I think is a really important study uh, that that talked about different types of parenting. It's from a 2015 article for the Atlantic um, that surveyed over 10,000 North American families. And they found that the families that mentored their kids online, basically that tried to interact with their kids online in the same way that they interacted and parented their kids in every other aspect of their lives, 
um, had the best results. Like the mm. kids um, were happier, they were more responsible online, um, and that overall the relationships were better. And this was in really stark contrast to the parents that she defined in the study as limiters. So those that said like no social media, no cell phones or whatever, mm. those that were limited uh, in their use or curtailed from using technology at all tended to have the worst outcomes. So they were more likely to bully someone or be bullied, impersonate a classmate or peer, threaten someone, access porn. Um, and in some ways it makes sense, right? Because they're just kind of getting thrown into that environment without a rule book for, or, you know, or without a sense of, of how to navigate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so some specific suggestions around digital mentorship is like, use your phone with your kids. So text them, play games with them, watch videos with them. If you are into memes, text each other memes back and forth. You know, if you're into <laughs> Pinterest, like share a Pinterest account. If your kid is like my, I have one kid who's really into gaming. I do not love gaming. It's the first person shooter games stress me out. Like mm-hmm. I get like weird stress sweats when I'm playing because people are literally aliens are trying to kill me. How's that fun? (laughs) But you do it. I'm so, I have to give you, you know, big snaps because gaming is not my thing either. And I'm just like, I I, I just, I'm not going to do it. My husband will play with the kids, but um, yeah. So I don't do it, but it's enough sometimes that I just like sit with him while he explains the game. Like I can oh, tell that's you a good the idea. backstory yeah. to Red Dead Redemption. These stories are, I mean, these games are so immersive and the talent and the voice talent and the art talent, I mean, it, they're incredible. Um, so I try, I try and pay attention to those things. Um, and also I love the internet. I mean, there's, there's a lot about it that I hate, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like anything else, but the parts of the internet that I love, I try and share with my kids. Like there's mm-hmm. so much great stuff out there that we can share with each other. Um, and when my kid wants to watch a new series or discovers a new YouTube channel or wants to buy a new game, we can research those things together, right? So if I tell him like, absolutely not, you can't get that game. If we've sat down and looked at the ER star B ratings and watched some YouTube videos that are showing actual gameplay and read the reviews, then I have a leg to stand on when I say no, because I've done the research. He knows I'm not, I'm speaking from a place of being informed. Right. Right. Um, and, and so I think it just really enhances the sense of, of how we use it. Right. Um, and, and that we use it together. And it's, it, it, uh, I, I hope is a pretty, uh, seamless transition from how I'm dealing with them in the rest of their lives. Yeah. And I, I love what you just said about, you know, I love the internet. I mean, me too. Um, and that the importance of really sharing those positive aspects is really, that's, that's like one of the best things, actually one of the things that my, um, you know, I love making cake. Right. And so one of the things that my girls and I love doing is, um, there's this guy, um, preppy kitchen on Instagram and his cake videos are just wonderful. So we just sit there and like, we'll watch them together. And it's, it's very therapeutic. I have to say. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, I can sit down with my daughter at bedtime and we'll spend 15 minutes looking at like the dog memes where, do you know where people like put quotes to dogs (laughs) and then they have conversations with other dogs and like call up. I mean, we'll just do that and giggle and talk about how cute the dogs are. And then I'll turn off my phone and, um, you know, she'll snuggle up and I will try and not to fall asleep when I'm checking her in. Yeah. I love it. It's great. It's really, I think it's, it's good to do that, but it also is an opportunity for you to 
show them in a very clear way that you're focusing on the positive things that the internet and technology has to offer and really turning away from the negative. And yeah. there have been times again where like I've I've had to delete my Facebook account for a week or two right. because I just find that it's so overwhelmingly negative and it's making me feel bad. But it's not enough for me to do that. I have to tell them I'm doing it and I have to tell them why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so good. So good. Well, we have covered so much incredible ground. And I, I really, I'm not just saying this because I love you and I think you're awesome and smart, but really I feel like everybody needs to get this book because there's, we, I feel like we just scratched the surface. I mean, I really only had time for as many questions as I did. But um, at the end of each show, Asha and I close with something that we call Your Next Edit, which is a simple, tangible action people can take. And I would love to hear what your next edit is in the context of our conversation today. Okay, so it it doesn't necessarily have to do with technology, but my next edit is to prioritize sleep. I'm Um, with you. This is a really, this is my year. I'm like, this is the year I do stuff. Like, I'm gonna go for it this year. Like, I have a book coming out. I'm gonna do all the work. And um, it's summer now and my kids are at home full time and my house is noisy and busy and I'm trying to give them my attention during the day when they're around. And that means I end up working really late into the night. Um, And it also means that the next day I wake up and I am not my best self. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I need to, there's like, I really promote the importance of sleep in the book um, and I'm not modeling that. Yeah. Well, and I would say that it is connected to our conversation because I think when you are well-rested, it's no joke, you will be better equipped to have these conversations with your kids. You will be less uh, prone to a blow up if you are frustrated with something that you see happening. So I think it's all related. I think sleep is like, is, is like the underpinning of everything. (laughs) It really is. Like, I have to, I mean, I guess my other next edit would be to like drink more water than coffee in a day. But I think if I get more sleep, I will require less coffee. And then my water to coffee ratio will regulate itself. All related. It's so crazy. (laughs) And, you know, the leading cause of people not getting enough sleep right now in, you know, 2019 America is often technology related. It's because Mm -hmm. people sleep with their phones in their room Mm -hmm. um, or they're using tech late at night. Um, and, you know, the blue light can disrupt circadian rhythms. And of course, technology, depending on what you're doing, can be very stimulating, which makes it harder for your brain to shut down. So um, I would really advise other people not to sleep with their phones in their rooms. Yeah. They can avoid it. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy summer day to talk to me. This was such a pleasure. And I'm so grateful to you for writing this book, which I think is both, I mean, it's so wonderfully nerdy. Hello, Venn diagrams, but it's also (laughs) so practical and real and I think is going to really help move the needle for a lot of families. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've loved this podcast for years. So getting to be on it, I'm geeking out a little bit. Oh, I love it. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay, Asha. So what did you think? Such a great interview, right? And the book has Venn diagrams. I was thinking of you when I saw the Venn diagrams, I will admit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, backstory. We put a Venn diagram into minimalist parenting specifically because Christine was like, I love Venn diagrams. Oh, well, no. And then also, you know, Asha sent me this like, you know, very big, awesome email a while back. And it, it in an email, it included a Venn diagram. So, you know, this is not limited to print publication. It's also okay. 
in Oshadornfest digital communication. All right. That's very true. I spent time on Canva.com specifically making that Venn diagram for that email. Yeah, it was beautiful. Anyway, uh, anyway, what, what we digress. What did you think, Asha? Back to Juliana. Okay. Well, uh, I loved it. Big surprise. Um, well, specifically, there are a few. I mean, there are a lot of things I loved in general. Like I said, I think she was just so straightforward, which I really appreciated. Um there are some specifics. I really loved her suggestion about narrating why you occasionally break digital rules or mm-hmm. you have to have an exception. I have done that over the years about various things, not just uh, digital stuff. And it has really helped a lot uh, with my kids. It really helped just bring something out in the open and not leave it sort of in the silent category where you assume somebody knows something, but they don't know something. And that has been a really great strategy. Mm-hmm. The other thing I have to say, which sort of made me laugh was that she uh, disclosed that she has played <laughs> actual shooter video games with her kid, which I got to say, I feel like that is called taking one for the team. I yes. mean that in all seriousness, it actually probably made a huge impression on her kid as a real show of good faith and respect. You know, my son is always asking if not to play. I think he's sort of given up on asking me to play games with him, but sometimes he just wants me to sit next to him and watch him play, or he wants to tell me about what he's doing. I think the fact is that these games really are important to some kids Mm -hmm. and are a real source of um, pride in terms of their skill and what they've learned. And it's interesting and they want to share it. And I think that the fact that she did that is really lovely i agree you know this is making me think oh maybe i should play okay so i don't even really know the proper names of the games i think i think we have a wii or something i don't know i think there's mario kart or something and the kids i think there's a thing you can do where you create like little characters you can customize mm-hmm. them so they look like you and mm-hmm. the girls that's have a wii. that's definitely that's a the wii. wii okay and it, see, that's how clueless i am about games but um they made they have made a little character for me and i probably oh. have used it once but maybe this weekend i'm inspired maybe i'll like bust out and get out of my comfort zone and and play i have to admit okay that that's actually pretty fun uh, that, that's actually i mean it's kind of cute to see yourself walking around okay anyway, anyway well, yeah th- there was there was one other thing actually i wanted to mention and that was that juliana mentioned another great author on this topic devora heitner she's the author of Screenwise, and we interviewed her sometime back so um another great conversation about screens and kids and families and 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 the whole the whole shebang so we've linked that episode in our show notes yes indeed there was actually another great intersection uh now right off the top of my head i can't remember if we mentioned it on when i was chatting with her but for sure it's in her book is with jessica Leahy, mm-hmm. uh another wonderful author who um we have interviewed so we'll also link that one up so many intersections mm-hmm. so many good mm-hmm. things Mm-hmm. Yes. Author of The Gift of Failure, which we were just talking about just now. So, um, yes, fantastic. Um, that was a wonderful interview, too. All right, folks. So many good things to check out. So you will find the show notes for this episode, including links to the resources we've mentioned, plus lots of great related episodes at edityourlifeshow.com. And as ever, we love chatting with you. And this week, we'd like to know what's a positive way you interact with your kids around technology? Pop over to facebook.com slash edit your life show and look for the question of the week pinned to the top of the page or chat with us on Instagram at edit your life show. Thanks for listening. 
I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.